You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years of this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Pupko in Montreal. I'm Avram Kivilevich. Um, Rabbi Pupko, both of us, I think, this week uh, need to take very strong mention. And actually, we're actually going to dedicate today's uh, discussion to your uncle, who I had discussed to uh, be Mishamish, Rav Kedalia Dov Schwartz, uh, who passed away last Thursday, just the day after we uh, recorded. And although there is no hispedim, uh meant to be uh, done publicly on Hanukkah, I think that if we speak about him, then we speak about who he was and what his significance was. I don't think it counts as a hesped. I, no. I think when Chazal say you can't be masped, we're talking about having a convocation and bringing people to shul and having people crying. But we, this was a figure that loomed large uh, in American life. I know in your family, of course, he was your beloved uncle. Uh, he was my mentor and, and someone I, I gained so much from. So I, I felt that we should sort of like take a little bit of shift from what we usually do, but in a way not. Because you, of course, I look at you as the paradigm of the of, of of 40 years. And and your uncle, I guess we could say 70 years a rov. Mm-hmm. Um Although, let's start off with this. You know, he 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 wasn't a, a shul rabbi uh, as with the same longevity. He actually jumped to a number of different small right. shuls. Um, we don't have the list in front of us because we don't do our homework. But no. <laughs> but he wasn't he was in English Town, New Jersey, which is not that far from where I am. I think he was in uh, Rhode Island, maybe in Providence for a while. Um, um, I think he was a Rev in Providence for a while. I'm not I sure. Know, like David was Rev in Providence for about a year or two. But he had been, uh, and maybe there was another city in Pennsylvania that he had been a Rev from. So he, yeah. But yeah. He, listen, when I, by the time I entered consciousness, he was already Rev in Brooklyn. Um, and, 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 was, and that show, of course, was the, it was the young Israel of Borough Park, right? Right. right. Which again, uh, you know, the demographics of Borough Park evolved. Let me put it that way, and uh, went to the point where, you know, his, uh, you know, it, it, you know, there was no, I, I wouldn't say there was nothing there. There was certainly something there, but obviously, uh, the Borough Park that he joined was not the Borough Park when he left. It was a different Borough Park, and then you know, the place for young Israel obviously was more limited by the time he left, and he he got this wonderful uh, position uh, in Chicago. Uh, and from which he really had uh, very broad influence on, uh, on on North American Jewish life in general. He wasn't in any way a local Chicago rabbi. He was still a national rabbi. He was oh, head of the president of the RCA, and he was um, very respected not only for his uh, uh, learning and his uh, ability to paskin, obviously, but he was also uh, for his wisdom and common sense and his very sophisticated understanding of American orthodoxy, American life, uh, Jewish life in general. Yeah, I, I would say that, and again, this is not when we list his accomplishments and talk about what he had done. Um, uh, one of the things that he was a champion for was um, 
what American rabbis had been able to pull off, there was a, a sense, although he loved the European influence that came to America after World War II, he was a staunch uh, defender and uh, exponent and a champion of the Rabbonim that had been in America at the turn of the century. Of course, he was a Talmud of Rav, Rav Mendelssohn, or Rav Yaakov Mendelssohn in, in, in Newark, who really took uh, this really um, very modest, a person from a very modest means. Uh, you know, his father had been a grocery store owner, and uh, he took this obviously talented fellow, Rob Mendelssohn, took him under his wing, and uh, helped guide him into this in, into a life of greatness. But Rev Schwartz always uh, he loved these old svarim. You know, whether it was Rev Yudalevich or Rev Mendelssohn. And and many times I noticed, um, uh, you know, he he would actually in some of his book reviews for uh, the Torah Journal uh, Hadarim that he ended up being the editor for for many years, he would uh, you know review these books written by these young new hotshots, and you know they were many years younger than him, and said, well, this Kiddush that you said over here happens to be found in some Tzavarfan American safer that he saw. And, and he would actually be able to quote a chapter and verse of the Svarim, which many people really thought, oh, those American pikers, they were taking advantage of, 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 of an America that didn't know what a ghetto really was. And therefore, these they rose to prominence and had their positions, and most of them were a bunch of kashrus uh, gangsters and, 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 and wrote their svarim on the side. And your uncle, Zohan Ravrocha, actually learned their svarim and really felt that the issues they were grappling with, even though the compromises they had to make but the issues they were grappling with and the psukim they came up with were important. And they were, you, I don't know if you have this book, but the CRC, and you're correct, gave him a very um, uh, a wonderful position, the Chicago Rabbinical Council. And they published a book uh, based on his machshava uh, called Shari Gedula, which has a very important addition to American Jewish historiography, which is a list of these, these Rabbanim and what they were involved in. So he really, in a way, uh, uh, you know, saw himself. I mean, you, you take, uh, you know, you, you talk, you know, I mean, people really, really don't understand how difficult it was uh, before World War II for, uh, for American Orthodox rabbis. People also don't appreciate the uh, extraordinary gedolim uh, that were really here and that lived lives of relative obscurity that died really in obscurity, but they were some of them, as you say, left behind uh, Svarim. For instance, in Pittsburgh, where my father became rabbi in, uh, in 1942, the rav before him was a man named Rabbi Zivitz. And they had gone seven years without a rav because they felt they had to sit seven years shiver for, their, for my father's predecessor. He had written Svarim on the Yerushalmi. Brilliant Svarim, brilliant Svarim. And I'm not telling you they're on the bookshelves in, in Lakewood. But brilliant smart. And again, people, they're, they're forgotten. I don't know if any of it, I know none of his grandchildren can read those far. I know that. Uh, the sustainability of Orthodox life uh, and before the war in America was very, very tenuous, very different, very different. And um, 
but he wrote, he wrote wonderful Spartan. He had a, a, a rabbi Ginsburg in Denver. Sure. Who uh, the you know he uh, he wrote the Svarim uh, Musar Mishnah and uh, Yalkut Yehuda and Musar Hanavim Musar Hanavim also I mean incredible stuff I mean I I have those Svarim only because of my father who you know I wasn't was not a contemporary of him but probably younger but you know had the uh, I have I have those Svarim and I and I use them all the time wonderful Svarim and uh, and who know who remembers these names. And uh, you know, there's a you know, you know, the Olamenu version of history is that you know Judaism began in America after World War II, and it's not true. Yeah. And 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 Rabbi Schwartz certainly not only was a part of that story, but appreciated that story and maybe was alone in celebrating that story because how who whoever spoke about it. I, I think one of the great things about your uncle was that although that was one of his pet causes, he loved the new wave of Torah that was occurring. And he would write about it, uh, how impressed he was. Now, a lot of these Rabbonim, you know, we hear a lot about, um, you know, Rablazer Silver's um, being quite upset that... Uh, that the Rosh Hashivas were taking over, right? They again, I think Rakefet uh, writes about this, yeah, yeah. Uh, about how at Rav Aaron's Levaya, uh, Rav Aaron Cutler's at Sal's Levaya, that the Rosh Hashivas ran the show and the Rabbanim didn't speak. And, and I think Rakefet and others have said this was a seminal moment in right. in Jewish in, in American yeah. Orthodox Jewish history. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, uh, maybe Zev Elif. My student, <laughs> who is now on the uh, on the vanguard of writing about these things, uh, I don't know if he agrees or not. But say, oh, now the Rosh Hashivas took over, right. and and, that and, was and true. Yeah, uh, but here's the thing about Rabbi Schwartz, Rabbi Gadali Schwartz, he loved the Rosh Hashivas and he loved the Ayil Matayra. Uh, he wasn't one of these bitching. I'm sorry for using that term. Right. Rabbis right. who said, you know, oh, those Rosh Hashivas, oh, they're into the Chumrah of the week, and now these Rabbanim. He, he really, and I think this was part of the struggle that he had, because in many ways, although he was, in my mind, the model of what a, a, an American rabbi should be, he really saw himself as a Talmud Chacham, as right. a Rav, and as, as a friend of these Rosh Hashivas. He saw himself as really... 100%. Uh, yeah. And again, I, I would put my father in the same category that way, that although, yes... It was very commonly heard in the 60s and the 70s, bemoaning the imbalance between the Rosh Hashiva and the Rav. But a lot of that imbalance was well-deserved, and some of it was undeserved. In other words, some of the Orthodox rabbis had compromised themselves and exposed themselves to being disparaged by the knowledgeable. There's no question that's the case. But it's also true that the Rosh Hashiva has exploited the vacuum and, um, and, and, and quickly acquired a dominant role in, in, in you know certainly in the in the more Haredi community to the detriment of the status of the rogue. But again, I mean it, honestly, does anybody care about this conversation? I mean I don't know if anybody cares. <laughs> no, I don't mean to disparage what we're doing. I mean yeah. to say is, yeah, all right, so what? But at the end of the day, what's interesting is I think now there's a there's a there's a restoration almost of the position of the rogue. I think that the Yeshivas have produced their own uh, rabbinic leaders, and therefore Rabbanim are once again, you know, restoring the the, the norm of, of pre-war Europe, 
Whether, whether well, Venom are dominant. Again, I don't. Again, I think it's going to be left to people in the next com- coming months and maybe years to determine your uncle's influence. But right. he was. He definitely was an encourager of that. He again to him. Uh, So if there was someone who was a product of the yeshiva velt, um, he was he had no problem uh, pushing that person, encouraging that person. Listen, but the rashivas also. I mean, you could fault the rashivas for the following. In other words, I remember when in 1972 I watched Tanei Yisrael for the first time in '73. I remember. I can't remember. Anyway. I walked in Yeshiva the first time in Zelzman, and you know I'm a kid from Pittsburgh, and you know, and I walked into the Yeshiva. I remember the not so subtle message was in those first Mushishmuzim in Der Yisrael was everything you saw in Jewish life in your hometown is illegitimate, and somehow weirdly, your misguided parents stumbled into the idea of accidentally sending you to the right place. Where now, for the first time in your life, you will see real Jews and real learning and real Torah and real from type. And no matter what you saw before in your shul and your rabbi at home, and then, you know, it was almost like, oh, you're going home. You have to go. Be careful. You're going back to your your your, your rabbi. Be careful. Now, I, as a child of a rabbi, saw all this. I mean, I think most things with a healthy dose of cynicism, and I never took it that seriously. But for a typical kid. You know, from, from Cleveland, Columbus, Chicago, Washington, Yeshiva, and is basically told that that the, the the norm in the American Orthodox rabbinate is comp is, is a compromised person, and therefore it is only here in this yeshiva that you will find authenticity. That was the message. Am I overstating it? You were there. Yeah, I would agree with you because I was not the son of a rabbi. I was the son of a of a learned European Jew, um, and I agree with you. I, I think going to the yeshiva, uh, you know, my mother said to me, Avrebu, don't get brainwashed." And I said, you know, you're crazy. I'm not going to get brainwashed. But in a way, there was a brainwashing that did occur. Um, you know, a, a lot of my liberalism that was from my elementary school uh, in terms of loving all people, uh, which was, you know, part of an American ideal. Was, like a bench. <laughs> right, you know, as the, you know, as well as I do, the way we referred to the African-American help in the yeshiva, right? There was a, especially in Nair Yisrael, where they had a history of, of fighting right with the uh, African-American community in, in the old neighborhood, in the um, the, uh, the Garrison uh, neighborhood, yes. it carried Garrison over. Boulevard, yeah. Garrison Beaufort. And the Rabbeim were, were, were openly racist. And, and this was, and, and, and again, I don't want to get in, I don't want to get this to be the discussion, but we could talk about a lot of anti, not only what your old shul was like, but also really an alternate version of America. Was really put on the table. No, listen. When I was, I, I remember as a kid. When Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968, yes, I remember my parents being deeply upset. And the first time I encountered a racist Jew was in yeshiva. Yes, and here is where Rabbi Schwartz uh, was was, and many people will say maybe he was naive, 
because he supported the B'nai Torah, supported the yeshivas, was very, but he had a completely different mentality. Um, uh, and and it, to him, American citizenship and the ideals of the United States were, they weren't holy, like, uh, but he... But they were close to it. Yes. He felt it was so important for a Ben Torah or anybody like I was working on the Besden with him to be the best citizen you can be right. and, not, and not just don't let them notice what you're doing. He, you know, again, he was, he was an American success story in a way because he was a product of the public schools. Um, he was proud of the fact that he was almost valedictorian. He, and, and, and he still retained an incredible appreciation of the United States and for secular knowledge, despite the fact that the world that he really lived in was the world that the Rosh Hashivas and he inhabited together. Um, so he, he, sometimes when I would speak with him, you know, I could sense his frustration with the fact that that this new to- the new Torah world didn't get those concepts of how important they were. And, and, and I think, you know... What well, we American see- Orthodox rabbis loved America. They lo- I mean, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, my Zayda, who had seen, my father's father, who had seen terrible anti-Semitism under the czar and then under the communists, had suffered terribly and was himself sentenced to a couple of years in Siberia, thank God. The sentence was never carried out because they escaped uh, Russia. But I, my, he was a brilliant man, my Zayda, Rabbi Eliezer, his picture was behind me. Right. And, and, and let me just interrupt you for a second. When I would visit Rabbi Schwartz, and I visited him often, he, he, he did not, his, his house was not decorated with many photographs. But right behind the couch in the living room in Chicago was a huge picture of your Zayda. Which who he loved, he 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 idolized. He yeah. felt he was. No, he was an extraordinary man, an extraordinary rub, and uh, and but and he was brilliant. So I tell you the story by 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 reminding that he was brilliant when he got his first social security check in the mail. He asked one of his sons what it was, <laughs> and my and my uncle, I believe it was. I don't think it was my father. It was my uncle. Explain, one of my uncles explained to him what it was, and he couldn't, couldn't understand this idea that not only is he living in a country where they don't take everything that's important away, they actually send you money in the mail. <laughs> the, I, the idea that not only was he left alone, but he was going to get money from the, from a from a non-Jewish government, right, coming from where he had come from, the czars, the communists, and coming and, and get. It was a concept that completely blew his mind. <laughs> and, yes. and American Jews love America. This was the Golden Medina, and it wasn't a materialistic statement. When many Jews use the expression Golden Medina, it was not about economic opportunity. It was about coming to a country where they let you live. That's all it was. Where you can go to a shul and you don't have to worry. Where you have coaching, where you could teach Torah, where you could do what you wanted to do, and you could be accepted on merit. You could succeed on merit. You could go to schools basically where you wanted and live where you wanted and work where you wanted. Yeah, America in the 40s and the 50s and 60s wasn't perfect. Of course, there was still anti-Semitism, of course. But compared to what they had grown up with, 
I mean, the idea of not acknowledging something like July 4th of Thanksgiving would never occur to them. Of course you do. This is the best place. This was the greatest gullus we've ever had. And you can argue that that is still obviously the case. I just just to mention you know, uh, some examples of Rabbi Schwartz's fealty in halacha. Um, one of the uh, I was involved in a case where a um, you know there was a, a very protracted um, uh, civil divorce proceeding, and the halacha get the had already been given, and uh, you know and and, and the couple. The woman was already involved with a man, and um, you know they wanted to have chuppah kedushin. And Rabbi Schwartz uh, told me, he said, you know, you should not be involved in any way, shape, or form with this wedding. So yeah. even though uh, one of the other rabbanim in the city, a very, very respected dayan and um, a Talmud of uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, and uh, really considered one of the premier paiskim. Uh, in America today, uh, was involved, and I was asked to, to take part in it. Rabbi Schwartz said, no, you know, you cannot. Uh, if there is no, not that the it's usher, but if there is not a, he felt, if there was not a civil marriage that was uh, recognized by the state of Illinois or whatever it was, a rabbi should not be involved in that. Right. Because we need to, right, there shouldn't even be a hint that somehow there's something par, uh, paralegal or meta-legal about what we do. Right. Um, and, 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 this, right, yeah, so and that just, was the common ethic. That's no longer the ethic anywhere in the Orthodox world. <laughs> but that's, <laughs> that's how it used to be. We, there was so, a great the gratitude and respect for the American system. You know, it certainly affected how they saw, you know, different questions. So, 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 so that's, so I think really, if we talk about, and I know I'm sort of like trying to talk about the arc, and I wouldn't call it the tragedy of his life, because he was a person who, talk about giving, you know, being given lemons and, and making lemonade. I think he was the ultimate example of that. Yeah. Uh, but one of the reasons why he wasn't, you know, this premier rabbi is because those elements passed him by. You're right. He was in Borough Park, but Borough Park became Chassidish. Borough Park became Yeshivish. Borough Park became a place where his type of direction and his type of approach was not appreciated. And again, as we know, the Shul, the Young Israel, where he was the Rav, as you say, became pretty much a non-factor, despite the fact that the Americans loved hearing his drushes. The people who would, uh, the old American types in Borough Park loved it. So I would say uh, that one of the things that, you know, the fact that he didn't stay as a rabbi for 60 years, or 70 years in one congregation, is really more a testament to how those communities had changed. And he remained this incredible stable force for what he represented when he was ensconced in the CRC. And I'm going to go on record here about this. You asked me before we started recording, you were asking me about this. I'm going to go on record here because I lived in the Yeshivisha neighborhood. I lived, and I'm going to say who they were. I lived in the Tells neighborhood in Chicago. And 
I don't know if this was the, the feeling of the Rabbonim and tells, but the Balabatim felt, oh, now they've gotten, you know, the CRC, which had a bad reputation for years for re- playing fast and loose in Kashrus, for playing fast and loose in Gerus, and many other things. Um, they had Rabbi Rogoff, who was a Choshavatal Machachim, but the impression was that many of the other rabbis were really running the show and using Rabbi Rogoff, this old, the, the, this European, uh, fig leaf, yeah. as, as, right, as a fig leaf for uh, the under-the-table dealings with the kashras organ, with the factories, and with Garrison. When your uncle came, there was this charge that, oh, he cannot... Um, you know, he cannot change things. Oh, he might be okay. I I heard, but he's going to, he's taking Shochan because they're giving him a salary. And they're giving him a salary. Even Yitzchok Avinu was guilty of Shochan, you know, took Shochan from, from Esau. And I, of course, had been uh, a Talmud of your uncles because I worked on the Besden uh, for Geras when I lived in New York. And I was screaming and saying, you don't know who this person is because I was in Chicago first. And and I and I would hear, you know, the, the the sense was, oh, this is just another, you know, they're just trying to cover themselves up. They're not really worth anything. And what he did was was actually the reverse. You know, he was able to really become that great figure uh, uh, for those rabbanim, for the new for the new rabbanim, for the Zionist rabbanim, for the rabbanim who who proudly wore the kippah struga. He didn't wear Kippas Ruga, but he wrote passionately uh, about uh, the uh, support for the Medina. If you read in, in Hadarom's, uh, the way he would write, uh, he wrote um, important articles about halachos for Medina Yisrael. Um, so I, I think that he, in, in a way, was able, because of, of, of that position, despite the fact that you know, they, he was suspected of being uh, a stooge, he actually turned out to be um, a powerhouse. In, I mean, the in, CRC in is respected by everyone today. The Kashmir is accepted by everybody today. And uh, but there is no question. Listen, my earliest memory, I was a kid when he would come to uh, to Pittsburgh when my father was around uh, to be Masada Gid. And um, and the way, listen, I saw how we talked to people. And uh, I saw, uh, you know, how, how he did things. And uh, he was a remarkable Talmud Chacham, obviously, a remarkably skillful, practical rabbi, and he was also very good to people, very good to people. He knew everything, but was remarkably humble. We all know people who knew and know much less than him, who have, uh, you know, exceeding arrogance. He never suffered from that. He was always humble, a very decent, integrity and beyond reproach, really beyond reproach. And, uh, and, but there's also no question that he understood the time in which he was living. He saw the evolution of American Orthodox life. And there are issues that he, um, where his approach had to evolve along with it. That means he understood who his constituents were. And he understood that what you say to a Jew in Philadelphia in 1972 is not what you say to a Jew in West Rogers Park in, in, you know, 2010. You know, it's just, it's a different world. It's a different world. And 
and, and, and the communities have changed. And uh, listen, I mean, he grew up in a, listen, I, we both, I mean, it's not really the case anymore, but, you know, YU was a punchline in the Haredi community when we were growing up. I mean, obviously, they still don't, you know, embrace it, but it's not the punching bag like it used to be. But uh, yeah, I'll tell you a very funny story. I'll tell you a very funny story from Montreal. Uh, Rabbi Muthel Weinberg, that's how I was Rosh Hashiva in, sure. uh, in Montreal. He was a Kanai. He was a, I think he's a Telsman. Yes, he was. Yeah. yeah he was anyway, he built a wonderful Shiva in Montreal, a wonderful Damakov. Anyway, but he, he was also very, he said a few very funny things. This is how, this is just a, uh, an insight into how that world saw YU. Ben Gurion came on a visit to Montreal. This is 100 years ago, right? Ben Gurion comes on a visit, I think it was in the 1960s. And before he arrived in Montreal, he had been in New York and he had given a lecture at Yishi University or was honored at Yishi University. And when he got off the plane in Montreal, I don't know why, but in an interview with a journalist, Ben Gurion said, oh, 600,000 Jews never left Egypt, 600 left, whatever, some uppy courses, whatever it was. <laughs> anyway, so when Butler Weiberg, heard, you know, it was all, it was a big, it was way before my time in Montreal, you know, saw what he had, had, had said or heard about it. He said, you know, he's just as a joke. He said, Ben Gurion was a good Jew all his life. He spent one day in YU, look what happened to him. <laughs> but that's how they used to talk about Yeshua University. And, well, uh, and, and so again, the world, you know, why you were saying to And you're right. And why you, if you go into the base Medrash now, it looks very similar to the way the Nair Yisrael base Medrash looked it looks when we were more there. more serious than yeah, our high school. Right. Yeah, I'm not talking about our high school. I'm talking about the, 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 the right. You see, guys, and, and I think Rabbi Schwartz, just to, to, to sum this up, was very happy about this type of thing. Yes. I think, I think I'll just tell you that, you know, he, uh, when, when I sat with him on a Dintaira and he, uh, we were talking about severance for rabbis and, um, you know, he put on the table, uh, you know, as, as, as a, a directive of how we should approach this, uh, Michael Broyd's article, before Broyd had published it, he had sent Rev oh, Gedalia, yeah. he had sent Rev Gedalia a, um, uh, a, a, it was in type, I remember it was, a, it was on a typewriter, it wasn't uh, published, and he said, he said, let's look at this. So Michael Broyd at this point was, you know, and still is, you know, 30, yeah. 35 years his junior. Yes. And, and, and Rabbi Schwartz says, Makabal Emes Mishamra. He, you know, again, he, he, he loved the fact that young people were out there working on new things. He, he was, he was, age really meant, although he was a, a very noble Zoke and Mamish, but really when it came to learning, the, the, the playing field was completely level. 100%. The fact that this was a guy 25 or 30 years old uh, working at Emory University who wrote a nice article. Yeah, you know, let's use that. Yeah. Uh, th- th- there, no, there was no, he was again guileless. He always saw the good, by the way. He would never, he, it was completely beyond his frame of reference to walk into Yeshiva, to see the prominence of Rosh Yeshivas, and to think anything but the positive. He was, he, he saw the flourishing of Torah in America as a miracle, as an unanticipated uh, miracle that no one predicted. And he loved it. He absolutely loved it. 
And there are those among us who focus on the negative, and we know there's negative. But he, he wasn't blind to it, but he had enough of historical perspective to to be in wonder of it, to be in awe of it. And, and, and that I, was that dominated his approach to everything. Yeah, and I would say, you know, uh, on that note, uh, one of the things, although you know, his 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 his, I wouldn't call it childlike, but he completely, uh, when he would try to understand something, he would try to understand it. You know, open the encyclopedia, open the articles. He was he he, he, he like I re- I was just looking at his article about papayas. He wrote an article about, uh, you know, whether papayas uh, have a dinner oral or not. He loved the challenge to go into botany now and to now investigate this area of, of wisdom. Many Rabbonim are in their comfort zone. And, and, and okay, let me work on that. He didn't, to him, discovering facts about yeah. a, a fruit or a, an animal or let's talk about one of his most important psalkim of the last years, uh, his psak about using stem cells, right? right. This, you know, he, he, he investigated it. And again, uh, let, let's be, instead of, you know, he might have, uh, unlike using, you know, his brother-in-law, Mordechai Tendler, you know, his son-in-law, Ramesha Tendler, to be his medical person, Rabbi Schwartz rolled up his sleeves and read the information about stem cells, what they mean, what they're about, and then used his encyclopedic knowledge of how this can now relate uh, to halacha. So it was his not stepping back from a challenge and also his love of exploration, his love of discovery, his love of discovering science and and, 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 and and being able, excitement of, of melding it to the Torah properly. You know, we all have, we, you've heard about the famous from Baruch Ber, uh, uh, when someone brought to him from the shlachtois, uh, from, the, from the chicken, they brought him the korkovin, right? The, the korkovin of the chicken. <laughs> and he said, oh, this is the halak of korkovin. This is the halak of korkovin. This is a korkovin. You know? Rabbi Schwartz was totally alien to that. Right. To him, knowing the Metzius, understanding the Metzius, being part of it, loving that, fusing Listen, it. Completely. He loved learning. He loved, and he had an insatiable appetite for learning. He loved to learn, and uh, and he had such a wonderful disposition. I can't begin to describe his loyalty as a member of the family. Uh, fierce loyalty. Never let me, and, and I will tell you that in that loyalty, he was, if you read between the lines, he was very honest. One of the pieces, in, in that, and of course the Sefer is dedicated, his second Sefer was dedicated to your grandfather, the Migdon of Seliezer. Um, he, uh, it's a beautiful piece. I'm going to be speaking about it uh, tomorrow. You can listen if you want um, uh, on my shear. Uh, he he inserts your 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 brilliant, other brilliant uncle, Rav Mordechai Savitsky, who of course was a uh, a Talmud in the sense of the Rogachover, who had wrote letters to the Rogachover, really known as one of the biggest Iluyim in America, uh, Rav Mordechai Savitsky, and the praise. In other words, he 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 not only quotes him, 
but he quotes him. He says, the Ilui, the Mefursim, uh, he understood where everybody lied. In other words, it's almost like Reb Zevin in a way of giving everybody the title that they deserved. Not everybody is just Rav Agoyin, Rashko Bnei Agoyla. You could see from the way Rabbi Schwartz describes people, he understood what made your other uncle unique, what made the Shagasari unique, what made the Sheomeshev unique. Um, and in that sense, instead of just being starry-eyed, I love everybody, he knew who was the, who was the philosophical Lamdan, who was the Bucky, uh, and, and you can see that from the way and, and that's real love in my mind. Yeah. If, if you just say, I love everybody, then you're almost like the beauty queen who wins the, you know, who wins Miss America and says, I want world peace and I just love everybody. I think Rav Gedalia, uh, no, he, no fool was he. And I think he understood where to put people, including some of those great people Listen, in your family. He, was he knew how to conduct himself with dignity. He, he, he was with humility and with loyalty. All the stuff, you know, that we take for granted. He, he really wasn't. He was the smartest guy in the room and never needed to prove it and never needed to plot it. He, he loved to learn. He loved the Jewish people. And he loved halacha as a mechanism. I understood what it is. It was never an end in itself. It was a means to an end. Uh, and uh, he understood that. And... Uh, he respected those who deserve respect. He loved those who deserve love. And he helped. He was a wonderful, he, he really was a remarkable man. And, and, and in many ways, you can't even call him a throwback, really, because he was so up to date, right? He wasn't the product of, an, of a different time and place. He was a product of today. He understood today. Yeah. He wasn't, you know, he, 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 he wasn't the guy you go to, to to find out how the world used to be. He was the guy you went to to find out how the world is and should be today. A hundred percent. And, uh, you know, I, I think we could go on for a long time here, but I mm. think as, as his shiva ended this morning, I think we can definitely say during Hanukkah, you know, thanks for spending some time with us and sharing some of your recollections uh, along together with me. And we could sort of mourn together and, and hope to fill that vacuum. That's it for this week for Emeritus Rex. Take care, everybody, and we hope to see you next week. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.